Hi, I'm Donna, and this is the American Social History Podcast. American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. How we commemorate the past and the public's role in deciding who and what we remember is a contentious topic. Actions such as the removal of Confederate monuments in the South and the recommendations of New York City's Mayoral Advisory Commission on City Art, Monuments and Markers have revitalized this debate on a national scale. In this episode, Professor Michelle Bogart offers a history of the bureaucratic processes behind monuments in New York City beginning in the late 19th century. This talk is part of our public history lecture series, Difficult Histories, Public Spaces, The Challenge of Monuments in New York City and the Nation. This series is funded by a grant from Humanities New York and the National Endowment for the Humanities. In a series of books and journal articles across her career, Michelle Bogart has sought to periodize the history of monument creation, from the free-for-all of the ethnic and patriotic monuments of the late 19th century to the counter-reaction of the City Beautiful movement embodied in the establishment of the Art Commission, which constrained ethnic monuments but may have improved monument quality. Her latest book, Sculpture in Gotham, completes her narrative to the restrictive and geopolitical politics under the reign of Robert Moses and his monument policy to a new opening in monument creation symbolized by the Lindsay administration and government institutionalized programs such as Percent for Art and Art under the MTA. Thank you, Michelle. Good evening. I come at the question of who decides in the public monument process as historian mostly, but also as participant observer, not as one empowered to select an artist, but as one who has reviewed the aesthetic suitability of artwork already selected. I'll thus begin by saying that in both circumstances, it's complicated, as Todd says. There are no simple answers to who selected in the past, and thus to the question of what it can teach us about now and moving forward. The more vagueish question of who decides, which enables us to imagine the process in broader terms that include the approval and placement of monuments, is even more difficult to answer categorically. The conveners have asked me to focus mostly on artist selection, but I will note some other pertinent, broader aspects that are crucial to understanding the relationship of selection to realization. First, I want to make a few general points, and then I'll use slides to show a few examples that trace the historical trajectory. There may be a little overlap. So first off, just as background here, the process of artist selection varied a century ago, reflecting the complexity of the city. But sculptural patronage was racially and to some extent ethnically circumscribed. So that's point number one. Point two, since the 19th century, since the mid 19th century, the process has always been a process. 
But prior to the establishment of Greater New York City and the implementation of the city charter, the process was less coherent than it became after 1898 with the establishment of a strong mayoralty as well as a 10-member unpaid body called the Art Commission of the City of New York. More on that later. Three, individual private citizens were at the core of the artist selection process, along with an occasional group, a conglomerate of strong-willed but cooperative individual people. Those groups typically got a bee in their bonnets to commemorate someone, and then they chose the sculptor who would do the job. Four, and this is obvious, selection of the artist was only the first stage. Subsequent developments, the successful completion of a project or not, hinged as much, if not more so, on municipal approval of whatever design and site the patrons group selected, as well as on the perceived suitability of that artist's design for that site. Five, assessment of those factors, mostly aesthetic factors, were premised upon the idea of shared civic and national significance as articulated through a certain kind of style, mostly tradition-based, classical, and academic, although academic art is no one thing. Judgment was also premised upon a commitment to professional authority in the practices of art, architecture, and landscape design, and on a shared set of assumptions about quality that cut across disciplines and that were to some extent, though not fully, class and education based. The assessment of quality and thus the process were thus reliant upon negotiation around and deference to professional expertise and to the idea of a broader civic good deemed to appeal to a broad citizenry and prevail over capricious or self-centered interests, no matter whether or not the patrons actually framed their interests or aims that way. Therefore, prior to the mid-1960s or so, there was no particular concern or awareness of community constituents or of neighborhood. No community was consulted except for the members of the narrowly circumscribed group initiating the project. And the community of professionals, cultural institution leaders, and other, quote, best men, like the commissioner of parks or public works, and those who populated the membership and staff of the Art Commission of the City of New York, which was the municipal body whose members were the final arbiters of what went where. And this is from 1939. The outlook was just very different from today. The concern in deciding who did what and what went where was a concern for situatedness, the big aesthetic picture, the relationship of a statue to its site. From our enlightened contemporary perspective, these aesthetic criteria have come to be seen as codes for racial, ethnic, and class distinction. Six, the decision-making process as it developed over an 80-year period was one governed by tension between the individual or discrete group interests and the broader ideal of upholding the greater good, the interests of the municipality and the citizenry taken as a whole. Those with the power to decide certainly included the people sponsoring the work, the ones who usually chose the artist. 
but self-conceived and legally designated authorities with power, the commissioner of parks, the members of the art commission, and the mayor, whose interests were nonetheless challenged at numerous points along the way, these were the stewards of permanent works of civic art, of design siting and installation. This state of affairs still exists, more or less, although its configurations are changing and are ever more fragile in the fractious climate that we live in. Given the complexities of the process, any selection that ultimately sees the light of day may be considered on one level to be a success story. So now on to a bit of detail. Most statues and monuments were generated, as mentioned, by private individuals or groups, like the uh, Verrazano, championed by newspaper publisher Carlo Barsotti, or the Heinrich Heine Memorial, Lorelei Memorial in the Bronx, sponsored by the German-American Verein, the Arion Society, small group. A desire to affirm ethnic presence and contributions to national culture often underlay those enterprises. Sometimes the sponsors came to the table with a sculptor already chosen. Sometimes they held a competition, either an open one, as with the main memorial and the Soldiers and Sailors Monument, that's one of the competition submissions that didn't win, or a limited competition, as with the Pulitzer Fountain. Once they had a sculptor, the groups went to the city for approval of the site and the design. Immediately before 1898, that meant the Board of Parks Commissioners, and after 1898, whatever city department on whose property the monument would stand, usually parks, but not always. Once that happened, the agency would submit the project to the Art Commission. Unlike in many cities, like San Francisco, New York's Art Commission did not select the artist, nor does it now. Its role was reactive, but it never failed to react. No matter whether the submission came from a small private group, from veterans, or large publishers like William Randolph Hearst, the force behind the main memorial, or whether the project was commissioned by the mayor, as was civic virtue. This approach to selection, once established, basically continued, even during the New Deal period, when the power to decide was somewhat split between the city and federal authorities. Things began to change a bit, first, when Robert Moses was in his heyday of power as commissioner of parks, and then especially later. Under Moses, private groups still selected sculptors for many projects, but Moses also played an active role in selection of a sculptor. With Alice in Wonderland, for example, Moses prevailed upon a lone patron, publisher George Delacorte, and persuaded him to approve the choice of sculptor Jose de Creef. From there, the decision-making process proceeded as it always had. The terrain really began to shift during the Lindsay administration. Newly formed nonprofits like the Public Arts Council, predecessor to Public Arts Fund, they took on an outsized role in brokering throughout the city commissions for public art on a range of different stylistic sorts. Some were permanent. Most, like Kenneth Nelson's work you see here, were temporary. But what really changed was orientation to audience, which in turn altered somewhat who decided. 
Projects generated under Lindsay were more neighborhood-oriented. They were committed to encouraging community affirmation and keeping the peace, as well as to helping artists. And women, like Doris Friedman, had a newly major role in selecting the artists and facilitating the completion. By the mid-1970s, there was far more political pressure for municipal authorities like the Art Commission to accept the product of whatever artist was chosen, as with this project you see here, Walking Pineapples, that was temporary work for Washington Heights but ran into problems, even for temporary. The Art Commission could de facto prevent a selection from going forward as earlier in the century, but tended to do so less and less. So by the time I served on the commission from 98 to 2003, that boiled down to practically never. With some permanent projects, like Tony Rosenthal's Five and One, the sculptor was chosen by the architects. Five and One posed challenges, not because of the selection process, but because of logistical issues and the absence of clear procedures. This situation was, in fact, part of what propelled efforts to implement Percent for Art legislation, to establish a process in which the art and artist selection were integrated into a larger project from the get-go, and which invested in expertise. Once the Percent for Art law passed in 1982, its director developed a process in which staff would call from a large registry of artists a smaller selection from which panels of arts professionals would pick an artist they deemed suitable to undertake a particular project. The membership of those panels expanded in the early 1990s to include representatives from the community in question. But these were not just some arbitrary locals, but rather they were arts professionals who lived in that borough or community. They had expertise enabling them to make a reasoned assessment of suitability of a certain artist's work for a site or project in question. During that same time period and afterwards, the Department of Cultural Affairs, the umbrella agency for Percent for Art, began to collaborate on complex multi-agency projects like the Frederick Douglass at 110th Street, which were not percent projects, strictly speaking, but still employed a form of percent for art panel process to select artists and work with them as intermediaries with the other agencies and groups. So whereas the Duke Ellington monument sculptor Robert Graham was chosen by the sponsoring monument committee, Frederick Douglass went through multiple stages. First, there was an elaborate visioning process that involved interested members of the Harlem community and that was facilitated by John Reddick, who is here tonight. Then a panel of experts and Harlem residents, some of whom were the same, made a selection from a group of pre-selected teams. Project staff, who included representatives of Central Park Conservancy, along with Percent for Arts staff, also vetted those selections with the community board and local residents. So in one sense, all decided. But even when the community is factored in, even when the city works with and consults with those communities, and even when selection involves reaching out to the public at large for recommendations, as the city is doing now with its future memorials to women, 
there are always going to be issues, misunderstandings, and perceived slights to one group or another when permanent work is destined for city property. There are just so many conflicting interests. To conclude, unless the current system for doing things is dismantled, which it shouldn't be, selection is always subject to the whims of the mayor's office and the agenda, ambitions, attitudes, and aesthetic preferences and expectations of whatever cultural officials have been delegated to oversee the process. So in the current situation, likely Commissioner of Cultural Affairs, Deputy Mayor Alicia Glenn, Mayor's Fund Director Ms. Shirlane McRae, and those to whom they delegate. It's subject to those with the power and connections of the specific patron constituency, who might include city councilmen. And it involves the workings of bureaucracy, the complexity of the infrastructure, for example, as well as artists' capacity to accommodate to situations that they may not be able to control at all. Thus, to answer the question, who decides? There are general patterns, as I've shown, but each choice is unique. The details matter, and we must examine all of them. Each tells an urban story. Given how easy it is or would be for a project to unravel, city officials must be committed to the community at hand, but must maintain a nimble but iron grip. The answer to who decides is ultimately city officials. Hopefully, a crew who are open-minded, politically agile, and not beholden to crass political agendas. Lots of luck. <laughs> Thank you.